Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Twin Cities by Night and our third story arc, Dread. Dread is set in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and St. Paul in the hot and humid summer of 2011. Join us again and continue to follow the journey of Katow, played by Quinn, and William, played by Slavic, as they continue to traverse the dark society held within the Twin Cities. They will be joined by three new kindred, Warren, a Tremere, played by Adam, Valentine, a Nosferatu, played by Alex, and Lenny, a Nosferatu, played by Andrew. The Coterie will find themselves joined together by a sense of dread. If you'd like to contact us, you can follow us on Twitter at twin underscore cities underscore VTM or Facebook at Twin Cities by Night. We hope you enjoy. William, your eyes open and you see that you're in a room, a room that is plain white. The floors are white. You look down and you see your hands sitting on your lap. You see you have some gray slacks on. You see you have a white button-down shirt, but you're really unable to move. You're just able to move your head. And when you look back up, you see where there was a wall in front of you before. Now, it's a single chair. looks like a chair that would have sat at a dining room table in the 60s. It's made of wood, has a thick cushion on its back, and on the seat, that's almost like a gold, yellow, embroidered embroidery to it. Matter of fact, as you look at this chair, you start realizing that this chair is one that was at your very own dining room table as a child. Behind that chair, you see an entryway into a hallway, one that seems to go on for a long time. You can't see the end of it. You just see that there's an occasional fluorescent light that's on the ceiling. As you're staring down this hallway, you see a figure that is walking down it. Walking is probably not the right term, I guess, more like making their way down it with a limp almost. And as the silhouette gets closer to the entryway of this hallway, you start recognizing the silhouette. It's the silhouette of your former ghoul, your former day worker, as you used to call him, David. And you see as he walks into the room that he is still wearing the jean shorts and the white t-shirt that he wore when you took his life. But now the front of the t-shirt is covered with blood. And you look up and you see where before was a balding man with bad skin and a double chin now lies someone with the front of their forehead that's completely blown out and exposed his whole left eye is missing and all that is intact of his right is this yellowish pus colored orb you even look down you see that one flip-flop is missing and you remember from when you took his life and you rolled him into the river you remember that one flip-flop that fell off his foot when you put that round through the back of his head and this figure slowly makes his way and sits in the chair that's directly in front of you and you're looking and you see that yellow eye you can almost make out its pupil a dim pupil and you see the mouth open for a little bit and it slightly gurgles as it tries to get something to come from its lips until finally you hear William, and you hear the voice that did not belong to David come out of that mouth. Instead, you hear the voice of Ellsworth, this man that you had spent that evening with talking to, and the man who you had gone 
to try to either drink from or bring him over and who had told you you had overstepped. And this figure looks at you and he says, William, why did you try doing what you just did? What was your purpose behind that? Safety. Taking my life, trying to make me like you, how does that make you safe? There's strength in numbers. I need numbers right now. William, I had told you the one way that you are going to elevate yourself, the one way that you are going to be able to free yourself is to cut those chains that tie you down. And you still haven't. William, you are still thinking in the ways that they want you to think. They want you to play their games, William. They want you to have the same concerns they have, William. They want you to be scared because of that, William. These were, this wasn't about games. This was about survival. Survival isn't a game. What is survival then? Mm-hmm. It's everything. Survival can very quickly become slavery, William. Because you are not surviving on your terms. You are surviving on their terms. I told you, playing by their rules, playing by their concepts, playing by the way they think, that is a game. Your kind are all about their stupid games, thinking they have reached an unlimited fount of power, but constantly they are tied down. You cannot come out during the day. I know what you are, William. I have known what you are the whole time. Look what you did to this. And you see the hands of David come up and go across the face. This is playing their game, William. This is how they control you. Because you're playing by their rules. You're playing by their humanity. You're playing by their code of ethics. And there's a moment where you see like this figure, as, as he's getting worked up, you see blood and, and a little bit of brain matter kind of spills out of his forehead while he leads forward and falls into his lap. And you see like the hand just kind of like picks it up and gently tries to put it back in where it came from. And as you're looking at this hand doing that, you see a, another silhouette coming down the hallway. And as you're looking, you see the silhouette's more feminine. And she comes walking down and she kind of breaks through again the shadows into the room. And you'll see that she is wearing this black evening gown and has these designer high heels on and a pearl necklace that is around her neck. She has her hair done in the style of the 60s and the 70s. It's blonde and very Germanic and very European in color kind of has that slight bob on top and it's pinned behind her ears. And this is someone that you have not seen in a long time because this is a memory that you had of your mother, William. And you see that she comes and stands behind David and she puts her hands, both her hands on David's shoulder. And you look at her and you realize that she's intoxicated and more, she's not doing this more as a motion of comfort, but she's doing this rather as a way to stay stable and to keep her balance like you saw her many times when you were younger when she would drink herself away to either make up for the fact that she was a trophy wife to an asshole businessman or that she was forced to have a child that she didn't want or she was forced forced to move from a country and a continent that she didn't want to leave and you see she looks down at you and she opens her mouth and there's a moment where you get excited to hear again your mother's voice because you haven't heard it in 30 years instead Ellsworth's voice comes out of it and she'll be, she'll look at you and she'll say, listen, Vidim. And you see there's a slight German accent that comes out a little bit out of Ellsworth's voice. You need to accept what is going on for you to really meet your true potential. Why, why do you think, William, that I have put so much effort into building a relationship with you? Is it something that I hear? What do you mean by that? Never mind. Are you talking about, you're talking about this ocean of yours? You're talking Maybe. about the waves that you're hearing? Yeah. William, your mind, no matter how much it has changed in 20 years, 
is finite. You're limited to your perceptions. You're limited to your senses. That is the only way that the world outside of you can communicate with you. There's something here that is not finite. And your brain is trying to receive that and to interpret that in the only way that it is possible to interpret it. And to many, that is an ocean. Some say it's primordial. Some say it is there. But it's not an ocean. It's a vein of sorts. Are you understanding what I'm saying, William? I feel like I'm beginning to understand. But I still don't see how this relates to anything, everything. It's all connected, but I don't know how. It's like being in a drowning in the ocean, I suppose. Right after you say that, you feel a hand on your lap and you look to the left and you see Kenneth sitting there. He has like a white dress shirt with a gray vest on and you see his cold steel blue eyes and his thick white mustache, well trimmed, staring intensely at you. And there's a moment where you feel that anger kind of rise up with your hatred that you have of him. And he says to you in Ellsworth's voice, 20 years ago, you changed, William. 20 years ago, you start seeing that there's more to this world, right? 20 years ago, I wasn't from this world anymore. Yes, exactly. But you still are anchored by this world. Do you understand what I mean by that, William? That you still find yourself being in control of things of this world. You have not fully let go. The cars, the money, the power, the fame, the revenge, the emotion, all that is are those chains that anchor you down that I've been telling you about. If you really want to get back at these people, William, including him, and you see the hands go up and down over Kenneth's face and body and his likes, you gotta you have to surprise them. You have to be unpredictable. Your type, as much as I am aware of them, have been around for millennia. And they play the same games over and over and over and over and over again. The hubris has led them to periods of mass destruction of their types to where now they feel they have to slink around over and over and over again. William, never changing, never adapting. No matter the new generations they bring over, they're still controlled by the same things. A greed, a sense of hunger, a sense of a game. Would you agree with me on that? Completely. And let me tell you something else worth, though. How aware are you of the different types of kindred? That's how we call ourselves. I'm well aware. Well aware. Well then, well, then you should know that the family, or clans as we call them, I am from, it's called Venturu. And when it comes to being shackled to a place... And there's nothing worse than being Ventru. You see, all vampires need blood, and we need it often. Oh, we do. If we Ventru, we have it much worse than others. See, we need blood from very, very specific people. So what every Ventru does, or almost every, always exceptions, is they find these people, and they find a way so that they can always have these people at their disposal. Okay, and without these people, without these people, we die, okay? I mean, you said it yourself. I can't go outside into the sunlight. I can't go outside out of the city. I am chained. You, Those words, the last words leave your mouth, 
you look around, you realize the room is empty. That chair is still there. But from this hallway, you hear this squeaking. And you hear it coming down the hallway, like in a cadenced manner. And you hear a voice coming from this dark hallway. William, William. You recognize the voice to be that of your father when he was in the nursing home. And you hear it coming down. William, will you still think? And as you hear that last line, you see him break through the shadows with his wheelchair. And he comes into the room. And you see he has this blanket over his legs and he's wearing like this plaid shirt he has liver spots on his hand and his face he has these tusks of hair coming out and his face looks jaundiced and yellow and he just kind of looks sloped like it's slanted and droopy on the left side from a stroke that he had and he's kind of leaning in this wheelchair and he's looking at you though with those intense eyes you think william that you're so fucking important just like you did when i was still around william Yes, I know about your kind, and your kind are nothing but a speck of dust in the the world of everything. Do you understand that your mind is trapped? Your ventru and your talk of blood is so minuscule in importance of everything that is around you. William, you have had your eyes opened. William. There are very few who have seen, and to truly see, you need to invert yourself. You need to turn yourself within. You need to realize that everything must become a negative of what you know it to be now. And as you say that, you're looking at him, and you start feeling along your skin a sensation of like goosebumps, almost like a sense of pleasure. It's almost euphoric at first, like your eyes close and you start remembering times of pleasure that you had making, having sex with women or, or drinking, or even when you were feeding off of Kenneth's Vitae. And then soon that feeling almost implodes upon itself. And it feels like your nerve endings are on fire and you feel like you have razor blades running across the most sensitive areas of your skin all over your whole body. And that room disappears. And you're alone in a darkness full of this pain. Soon this pain just becomes a wave that you can't control. Soon the pain loses its meaning of pain in itself. And soon it almost starts to damage your soul. And you hear a voice through this darkness. And it's the voice of Ellsworth. And he says, William, there have many been many who have tried, William. And as he says that, the darkness breaks. And you are looking down, almost like you are removed from your body. And you see there seems to be a large room, almost a hall of sorts. And you see dead bodies align the floor. And dead bodies are all along the wall. And you see a throne. And in this throne is a corpse and a black robe holding a goat's head. Almost like it is sacrilegious adaption of the Virgin Mary holding baby Jesus. And you see that in front of this throne is a man or a shape of a man who's completely skinless. You see muscle and sinew. You see ichor dripping off his hands. And you see in front of him are four people frozen. One looks to be 
a white male with blonde hair has a sense of authority around him. The other looks almost like a strung out junkie wearing a brown leather jack jacket with short, shortish blonde hair. You see a larger man who looks to be Native American or half Native American with short brown hair. And you see a man with a long, long brown hair and a ponytail with a thick mustache. And then you hear the voice over happened again. And he's like, many have tried, William, and they have failed. And then you see the scene shift and you see like the figures of the four men start moving and you see the skinless man screaming at them when behind him comes this naked woman, a native woman, and she pushes her hand through his chest. And then you're back in that room sitting on the couch and you have your father in the wheelchair before you. And he says, unlike others, William, I did not fail. I have reached it. You're going to wake up soon, William, and there'll be something in the room for you. It is my gift to you. You need to carry on with your normal day-to-day behavior and think about what I've spoken to you about. And when I feel that you have learned the lesson for me to take the next step with you, I will find you. But let me tell you this, William, my patience is only so much. You try again what you tried last night on me, you will not be. You will not be. I understand, Ellsworth. Good. Now wake up. And when he says that, your eyes snap open and you're staring at a ceiling. What are you doing? It's daytime, uh, nighttime, right? You just see a ceiling. Okay. You feel, you feel your, the feeling that you're having right now is when your corpse is animated again, which usually signifies that it's nighttime. William, well, he tries to get up. You sit up and you see a dresser in front of you and you look around and you realize that you're in a small bedroom and you see in the corner, there's a second where you see in the corner and your eyes open and your nose flare and you see one of yours. She's in the corner there. Her ankles are tied up and her hands are tied up and she has a gag in her mouth and her eyes are all wide. And you see the mascara has ran down her cheeks from when she was crying and she's shaking. I need you to give me a self-control roll, William. Difficulty seven, please. Because you have of one blood point right now. It's true. Botch. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I figured that was going to be a possibility knowing you, William. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you are staring at this figure and everything is black. And next, you know, you are waking. Your eyes are like moving around. You're like, what are you doing? And you find your tongue out on the wall and you, and you push yourself back from the wall, your face back. And you see where these blood trickles that were coming down the wall from something, you were licking them, like trying to get them up. So you see like a smear, almost like an abstract painting was done with the brush. And you look at your, and you look at your hands when you push back and you see your hands are completely crimson red. And there's a moment where you start licking your hands without even realizing it. And you look down and you see what is left of what was yours. You see that her throat is completely ripped out. You see almost that the, sinews and tendons of her muscles were tore out to where her head now is flapping at an odd angle back her vertebrae looks like it was almost snapped almost like you're trying to get to the marrow of it while doing it and from biting and ripping out her jugular like that that the wall had been sprayed with this beautiful font of life that you had been trying to look at in your lust and your hunger i need you to roll me a conscience roll please Difficulty a humanity three actually. So uh-huh. uh, killing someone in a frenzy doesn't give me a humanity. Okay, good. 
<laughs> I, I'm past that point already. You're past that point. All right. So you you see that looking down as her dead eyes are staring at the carpet, wide open. You can even smell the smell of urine and feces from when she let herself go after her brain lost control of her body. And you see also on your shoes and all along your pants and on your shirt that there's blood. What's going on in your head right now? And by the way, you have a full blood pool point. You got 10 blood pool points now. So, right. Well, uh, look, Ellsworth left me a change of clothes. Uh, this was a inconvenient that- situation. With what you all that has happened. Right. Uh, when it comes to processing stuff like this, I feel like William would have to process it somehow later because right now he's just like, fuck. I have to like find out about everything, you know, what's happening or around me. Where where am I? It's been a wild torrent. Prob- yeah, exactly. It's yeah, been like a fire so. hose of information, I guess, right? So to ask you, like, what is William thinking right now? He's probably thinking shit. Like just in big <laughs> letters, 24 exactly. inch font in his head. Definitely. Yeah. Probably going to check the wardrobe, see if there's any clothes there. Yeah, and in this wild fit, you're like opening up drawers. You open up a closet and you see that conveniently that there's a couple suits there from. And there's a second you stop and you realize that's from your apartment. Like someone had to have been in your apartment to get those. And you find that there's shoes in there. You see that in this room, there's attached bathroom. That you, and Everything that you need to be able to clean yourself leaving to leave this room is there. And you also see that there's a door that you assume leads out. Okay, so William is going to change into the new clothes. Uh, is there some some sort of trash can or bag where he can sort of put his bloodied clothes in? Well, yeah. You- First, he's going to check out the door and see where he is. But afterwards, he'll have to... I, I mean, if he's in Ellsworth Tower, he can just leave the body there. But if he's not, then he might have to deal with that somehow. Definitely. So you open the door and you see a small living room and you see that there's like a picture window that looks out into a front yard. And on this coffee table that you see in front of this one couch, you see like a folded piece of a paper, like in triangle, that's in there, almost like a card that's on the table. And you see in this elegant handwriting, the name William. William will open this letter. You open it and you read it. And the letter says, William. Do not worry about this mess. Do not worry about this house. It is taken care of. It will not come back to you. But think about what we spoke about, William. It is time you learn your lessons. And for the sake of our friendship, I really do hope you reach your true potential. Then you see at the end, handwritten, is the name Ellsworth. Next, we'll cut to Katal. Katal, your eyes snap open. And you have this OD green blanket that is over your face. And you remove it. And you look around and you see that you're in the shed behind these bags of grass seed. You kind of like push them out of your way and you feel the, your phone vibrating in your pocket right now. I answer it. Yeah. So I take it you found somewhere to stay and you hear the voice of Annabelle. Yeah. Who did this? Who ordered this? The, the, if I was to guess, the prince or his people, I don't know. That still needs to be figured out. Well, let me tell you this. There are people who can help us. And one of them wants to meet you. Who? I'm not going to say over the phone. Someone you're acquainted with. You remember the last time where we saw Aaron? Yeah. Can you be there like in 30 minutes? I can. I think. All right. Be there. Don't, don't. Just show up there. And hopefully some answers will be given to you. Okay. 
They better... Or else... I'm getting tired of being the one jerked on a leash. Katal, let me tell you this. You are not alone in that feeling. <laughs> well, let's see what we can do about it. Yeah. See see me there in 30 minutes, okay? See ya. All right. And so with that, Kaitel will just sort of get up, sort of just brush himself off, and it's like, okay. They want to make, they want to bring us here? I'll make them regret this. I'm going. They want to escalate? We'll escalate back. At this point, he's, he's starting to get angry about this. He's like, I just wanted, to, you know, this Kaitel just wanted to be left alone, but now he's just like, and then he was like, okay, I gotta be a bit meaner about this, but now he's going to the point where, like, things are going to have to change if I want get what I want, and I think I'm starting to look forward to changing things. Forcefully. Yeah, for sure, for sure, definitely. We'll say even, like, while you're driving there, you know, like, maybe you're speeding a little bit out of anger, you know, as you're getting there, and for those of you who don't remember, you had met Aaron and Annabelle I mean, you've known him before, but you spoke to Aaron and Annabelle at that Native, Native American Museum that was kind of by that man-made lake. It was actually in the homecoming story arc where Aaron, after the death of bugs, Aaron kind of told Annabelle and Katow that he felt that he kind of failed them as primogen and he was done with it and he was gone. He was going to go. And that left Annabelle and Katow in a position of weakness and not weakness, but definitely in a precarious position where they had to figure out how they were going to survive with the pond of sharks swimming around them. But it became quickly more of like people were trying to curry their favor at that time. So you're driving there and you come upon the parking lot. It's about like seven in the evening right now. You get into the parking lot of this building that is made of stucco, you know, more of like a tan stucco, material the parking lot's rather large you see in front of their signs like twin uh, twin cities native american museum of arts you see like the lights the security lights are coming from within the glass front entrance doors there's like a large walkway that leads up to it that kind of has like benches and has where people can sit during you know the opening hours they want to and talk you kind of see where they normally be like a large amount of foot traffic through here but where you had met Aaron and Annabelle was off to the left. There's this natural sweeping green area where people will sometimes sit out and picnic or where there are a couple actual picnic tables out there. And there's like a man-made lake that is behind this building. And as you go into the parking lot, you see that there's two vehicles. You see Annabelle's vehicle and you see the, an old pickup truck that is there. And as you get out of your vehicle, you see two silhouettes that are along the lake. You can kind of make out the silhouette of Annabelle, but you can't quite make out the silhouette of the other person. What are you doing? All right, before I get closer, I am going to activate Prudian 1, which is the Eyes of the Beast, and just sort of like look around this situation because he's kind of a bit paranoid at this point. Definitely. Go ahead and give me a perception alertness, please. Difficulty 6. Okay. Uh, Three successes. So you get out of your car, and there's a moment before you leave the radius of its of its just the comfort that it provides you, knowing that it's yours. You tap into your beast, knowing that the fear and the instinct that you're starting to let take over, especially now, knowing that you are being the hunt, that you're being the one that is hunted, and you are able to see through the darkness. And you definitely know that it's Annabelle, because after you've looked around, you don't see any other threats, but then you look at the figure with her, and there's a second of recognition, and you realize that it's Ty that is standing there with her. Hmm. And the last you had heard from Annabelle herself... She had told you that Ty had had enough 
that had left the city. And now she's standing there with them. What are you doing? At this point, Kaitao will slowly approach them and, you know, just sort of like call out saying like, Thought I heard you left. Hey, kid. It's, sometimes you gotta fucking lie. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that is so true. <laughs> oh. oh, you have no idea how true that statement is. <laughs> Listen, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. Shit's going down. I noticed. And you got yourself in the shit, man. Yeah. Well, about situation is normal, I guess. Yeah. yeah. If you want to call this fucking normal. Uh, I'll give it up on trying to figure out what's normal the last few months. This is all a fucking facade, man. It's not for what? You see Annabelle just kind of like looking between you two as you're talking, you know? All this. It's fucking bullshit. It's a fucking coat of paint or something that's rusted and being barely being held together, man. Yep. Let me, let me ask you this, kid. In your priority of things that are on your radar right now, right? And that, that's most dangerous right now. What, what are those things? Well, I think that's a good question. I'd say right now the biggest threat to my current safety are the Ventru. Most of them, not all of them. And, well, and there are some people, that, some people over, uh, some people, some mortals I don't really like care for me, but... Well, and there's this couple I need to find that that's they're, they're in the mess too. So all in all, just a bunch of shit, just a whole bunch of shit. Yes, that's because we got shitty leadership right now. You say the venture, and and fuck them, and and you're right. But how you're taking them as a threat right now is not the threat that is really that is really there with them being in charge. What is then? The threat is what they are not protecting us against. What what what? I know Bugs didn't talk to you that much, man. And I know a lot of the shit you've had to find out on your own. <clears throat> and I think that's fucked up. But I'm the one. I helped Bugs curry favor to make it to where you weren't wiped out. Okay? But I feel like I owe some kind of fucking apology, uh, apology for the fact that you weren't brought in. But that's his way of handling shit. And it wasn't me to step on Bugs' dick with when it comes to that. All right? Fucking so. First of all, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but. Have you ever heard of anything? Have you ever heard of our kind who completely lost their shit and went batshit? A couple times. Yeah. They, they, they have a name for themselves. They're like a bunch of fucking religious wackos. They call themselves the Sabbat, but let, 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 let me explain this. You're seeing how fucked up shit is right now, right? Yes. And you have no faith in our leadership right now, right? I have that, haven't had that for a while, honestly. Okay. So then let me ask you this. If you... How would you feel if you realized that that fucking leadership that you have no faith in, that one of their main responsibilities is to protect you from a bunch of ravaging fucking animals that are a kind that want to destroy us because of some religious fucking outlook or just for the sheer fucking pleasure of it hidden behind some religious meaning? I'd say they need to go. Yes. I'm not from here. You know, you're, you're, the way you were brought over may have been fucking shitty. I get that. The way I was brought over was a lot fucking worse, man. I fucking... I don't talk about this as much, but I'm going to fucking tell you this because I want you to understand what exactly I am concerned about, okay? All right. I wasn't brought over too much longer before you. I was brought over in the 70s, all right? Before that, I was kind of a piece of shit. Didn't like the family life. I had a wife. I had a daughter. I didn't like fucking having to keep a nine-to-five job. I got into the wrong types in the Oakland area. Got old. Fucking every day was coming a blur. 
I was fucking drinking, whoring around, doing a bunch of shit, calling it freedom. And then one day, my daughter, who I hadn't seen for fucking 15 years, finds me in this hole-in-the-wall fucking bar that I'd spent the last 25 years sitting in with my buddies. And she's a grown woman. She sits down in front of me, and she tells me my ex-old lady is dying and tells me that she has cancer. And my daughter, as a last-ditch effort, came and found me and asked if there was any way that I could help cover the medical bills. During this time, mind you, she's trying to work, trying to put herself through school, and taking care of my ex, who I left, who is dying, who had to raise this daughter of mine on her own. For some reason at that time, I realized I had one chance to fucking make it all right. One chance to make it all right. I called some favors in. I asked if there's any way I could make some quick cash. I got told I could fucking mule some shit and I could make a quick amount of money. And my plan was to get that fucking money, the little bit that it was, give it to my fucking daughter and start to build a relationship there again. So I stopped one night. I'm trying to drive from Oakland to New York and I stopped one night and I'm in Detroit, outside the Detroit area. I'm at a fucking truck stop and I'm just having a cigarette, man. And I've been driving and I got brought over and it wasn't pretty, man. I got brought over by a group of motherfuckers. And the only way that I got out of that place is I tapped into something that was in me after they brought me over. And I fucked those motherfuckers up. I took one down and I fucking fled. And I had no idea what I was, brother. No idea. All I know is for the next few days, I was driving my truck at night and I was fucking hiding during the day. I was fucking hungry. I had no idea what I was. I lost my control a couple times and I found myself in these cities. I found myself looking out on the Missouri River one night and I told myself, this is it. I'm done. I'm just going to fucking stay out here when the sun comes up and I'm over because I instinctually I knew it was my, I could do it. And Christopher, Christopher Connor, member of my clan found me there and he talked me down and he told me, listen, think about it. And he would come out there at that same spot the next night. And if I had done it, I'd done it. If I didn't, he would take me in and he took me in because I decided that there was something I could do something with this new purpose I had. Christopher did the right thing too. He took care of my ex and took care of my daughter. And I faked my fucking death and time moved on. But there's a reason why that Christopher pushed for me to be a sheriff. It's because I had history with these types. Face had history with these types. Bugs had histories with these types. Tree had history with these types. And there's a couple times, man. And maybe if we have time, I'll tell you. And the 80s things got a little hairy. The reason I want a regime change, man, is because these people who are fucking here to protect us are not. They're more concerned about the shit, whatever's going on, whatever's going on with the Giovanni, whatever's going on with that fucking goddamn asshole Ogden, whatever's going on with that couple, which, by the way, I know where they're at. I've been hiding them. I'll take you to them. But I need this from you, man. What? You, you want this shit to change? I need an answer. Yes or no? Yes or no to what? Do you want the regime change? Right now, I don't think I've wanted anything more. Okay. This is what I need from you. I need you to police up your buddies. Because the fucking powers that be are trying to find them too. And one of your buddies, that Lenny guy, I don't think he's going to make it. I think he's done. Why? They're, they're going hard after him. I got, I got a couple of my buddies right now trying to see if they can salvage that. Don't worry about him right now. I need you to police up the other three. Listen. Once you police up the other three, and this needs to be ASAP, we're going to police up Carlos and Cindy. 
And I'm going to take you to some other motherfuckers. And we're going to plan. And we're going to strike. And we're going to get this shit changed. At this point, Kaito just sort of like, it's like a Mika smile. It's like, finally, some, finally something I want to hear. We got you, man. I got you, okay? I'm sorry she had to lie to you. But you understand that we couldn't be out front and open about things, right? Uh, nope. I understand completely. So I need you to call the other three. Get them together as soon as you fucking can. And we're going to go meet up with Carlos, okay? All right. All right. Hey, man. Bugs would be proud. Oh. Hello again, folks. I'd like to tell you about the Facebook group we run called White Wolf and Onyx Path RPGs Gameplay and Media. Have you ever wished you could have an easy way to find gameplay videos and podcasts or just media in general that deals with your favorite White Wolf role-playing games? Or have you ever wished you could find a forum to share gameplay that you have recorded? One that won't be drowned out by random posts and discussions so that your media could give the attention you deserve. The group is specifically run with the sole intent of it being a one-stop shop for people to view or share media involving the games we all love. We take thorough steps to ensure the page does not become cluttered and is easy to traverse. The group is already immense and continuing to rapidly grow, with new media being shared every day. Stop on by. We hope to see you there.